You're listening to Radio Maria, a Christian voice in your home. We now present our program, Jesus, the Promised Messiah of Judaism, with Roy Showman. Hi, this is Roy Showman, and welcome once again to Jesus, the Promised Messiah of Judaism, the show on Radio Maria that celebrates the Jewish roots of the Catholic Church, or seen the other way around, uh, seen, frankly, the way that more along the lines of the way I see it, that celebrates the Catholic Church as the completion, the fulfillment of all of the promise and, in fact, meaning of Judaism in the Catholic Church and its sacraments. Because, in fact, from a Catholic perspective, actually from any perspective, including a Jewish perspective, the meaning and purpose of Judaism was to bring about the Messiah, uh, the, the Savior of all mankind, who would open the gates of heaven. And from a Jewish perspective, this hasn't happened yet. But from a Catholic perspective, of course, we know that it has happened, and Judaism successfully fulfilled its mission in bringing about our beloved Jewish Messiah, Jesus Christ, hence Jesus, the promised Messiah of Judaism. One of the things I do like to do on this show, uh, probably my favorite thing to do, is to have on a guest who is another enthusiastic Jewish convert, as I am I, a Jewish entrant into the Catholic Church. But today, uh, I don't have any waiting in the wings. So instead, I will read some first-person accounts of um, Jewish converts to Catholicism from the past. Uh, and before I begin reading these accounts, let me just quickly say that in this light of the Jewish roots of the Catholic Church, I will be leading a pilgrimage to the Holy Land, to Israel, in April of 2017, a kind of Jewish roots of the Catholic faith pilgrimage. Uh, we will go to all of the primary Christian sites in the Holy Land, all the places where Jesus was, was born and ministered and was crucified. Um, and we will add to the standard Catholic itinerary some Old Testament pilgrimage sites uh, associated with, for instance, the prophet Elijah and and um, other Old Testament figures, and also some sites associated with the, the heart of Judaism and the heart of Jewish mysticism to demonstrate and to experience the inner unity, or uh, I should say continuity, between Judaism and uh, Catholicism. And if you're interested in that, Pilgrimage, just um, just get in touch with uh, me through my website, salvationisfromthejews.com, or email uh, haveroytalk at gmail.com. That's just haveroytalk, as one word, at gmail.com. And I, I'll send you information about the pilgrimage and uh, more information with costs and dates and itinerary and so forth. That having been said, let me go on to reading some accounts of uh, Jews who became enthusiastic Catholics uh, from a lovely book uh, from a while ago. I think it was probably written, yes, uh, in the first half of the 20th century by a Jewish Catholic convert herself, Rosalie Maria Levy, and it's just a collection of accounts that, that she collected and put together in the book. So the dates of the conversions in this book are, of course, uh, the first half of the 20th century and You'll see in the in the conversions. I am interrupting myself before I've even begun, but it's, it was telling to me in reading these conversions that uh, some of the conversions uh, actually make explicit reference to first of all 
the recollection and beauty of the Catholic liturgies, the Catholic masses, uh, in a way which perhaps is, is less universal today than, than it was at the time of these conversions. And the other is the uniformity of those liturgies um, impressed some of these converts. So there's in particular one who was interested in Protestantism, but of course every Protestant church differed from every other. And he was very struck by the um, uniformity of Catholic, of course, Catholic belief, which is totally uniform, but also Catholic practice, which is less so today. But that having been said, again, let me begin. Um, so this this short account is by a Jewish Jewish soldier, or it's about a Jewish soldier, actually. Um, it's called On Flanders Fields. In the muddy, shell-gnarled fields of Flanders during the late war, a chaplain plowed his way through wire entanglements to console the wounded men of his regiment scattered here and there along the uneven ground to find buddies who had gone west. Suddenly the priest bent down near the form of one doughboy who had been killed by several machine-gun bullets. He recognized the body of a Jewish convert, and across his lips was a small silver crucifix which the soldier had placed there in his dying agony. The story of the crucifix, the manner by which the young man came to embrace the Catholic faith ten hours before he went over the top, has been told by Reverend P. E. Hoy of the Paulist Order as follows. Our regiment was the 107th Infantry of the 27th Division. It was late in September when we got the big news that the outfit was going over the top. Everyone was in good spirits, and I heard about 700 confessions and arranged for a mass at a very early hour. The men knelt about five rows deep when I gave them communion. I had almost finished when the Jewish lad, whom I had observed fervently praying during the mass, caught my attention. He was lined up with the other men. I paused and said that his faith did not allow him to receive communion. But I have been attending all your masses, Father, and I honestly believe the bread and the chalice is the body and blood of Jesus Christ. Please give me communion, pleaded the boy. I asked the young lad to come over to see me after the Mass, and we would talk the matter over. He arrived promptly, and we had a real heart-to-heart -heart talk. Being convinced of the soldier's faith in Jesus Christ and his desire to be baptized, I administered the sacrament of baptism, heard his first confession, and gave him Holy Communion. That afternoon, while I was taking charge of some of the soldiers' mail, the young convert came in to chat with me. While looking over the letters, a small silver crucifix fell out of one of the envelopes. The soldier picked it up and asked if he could keep it. As it was impossible to tell to whom it belonged, I gave it to him. Not twelve hours after I found the lad dead out in no man's land and the silver crucifix sealed his lips. Later, an account of the boy's conversion, together with the little crucifix, were sent to his mother. Since then, she and the entire family have embraced the Catholic faith. End of the account. Uh, let me just point out two things before I go on to the next account. One is the amazing beauty of the divine providence that um, the, this this um, 12 hours or, or 14 hour stretch the Jewish boy was at Mass. Uh, the priest refused him communion for, because he was Jewish. 
uh, the boy explained his, his faith and the father gr- had the opportunity. I mean, he was gracious enough and had the chance to speak to him shortly after mass and was convinced of his sincerity and, uh, baptized him, heard his first confession, and gave him Holy Communion on the spot. And then there was this amazing providence of the silver crucifix falling out of an envelope so in front of the boy, and because they couldn't tell which envelope it came from, so they didn't know who it belonged to, the priest let the boy keep it, and then just hours later he died with that crucifix on his lips. Uh, a coincidence? I don't think so. And then... Beautifully, 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 um, his whole family embraced the Catholic faith. So it's not too much of a stretch to think that on some interior spiritual level, the uh, boy offered the sacrifice of his life for the conversion of his family. And certainly the grace of his um, conversion, and of course, I don't want to say dying a saint, but dying hours after uh, being baptized, um, uh, fed the grace of the conversion of his family. And that's something that will become apparent in all of the stories that I'm, I'm reading today, and in fact in all of the stories always of Jewish converts, which is that faith in Christ is is a gift, it's a grace, and it doesn't come anywhere except from the generous hand of God. And what gets God to be generous with the graces he gives? It's our prayers and it's our sacrifices. So there's, uh, there's no such thing as conversion without it being the fruit of somebody's uh, prayers and sacrifices. Um, and we will see that kind of, that kind of sovereign grace of God aspect in, in all of these conversions. Anyway, I will continue with another one. Uh, a woman who became a religious sister, and the title of her short story, again, I'm reading from a book called Why Jews Become Catholics by Rosalie Marie Levi, Levy. Uh, this one's called The Sister of Mercy by Sister M. Aquin. Were not that I do this in obedience, I would hesitate to tell the story of my conversion. Words seem inadequate to reveal, even in some small degree, the patient seeking of the divine shepherd for a stray sheep. Of necessity, this must be personal, since it depicts the inner struggle of a soul. My parents were Orthodox Jews and brought up their son and three daughters in strict adherence to its tenets. My mother was one of those rare souls, really Catholic at heart. I believe her soul was never stained by a grievous transgression of the law. At the age of 17, I became very much dissatisfied with my religion. It appeared to me nothing but an empty ceremonial. I yearned for a living God, a loving Father, and I could only find a stern judge, a hard master. My soul was troubled, unhappy, despondent. I had caught little fragments of the life of Jesus from the example of my Catholic companion, B, whose unwavering devotion to her blind aunt was truly Christ-like. Her peace of soul, her childlike confidence in God, contrasted strongly with my turbulent spirit. Was her religion the true one, or was mine? Both could not be right at the same time. If the Messiah had come, the Catholic Church was right. If he had not come, the Jewish belief was correct. 
So I argued and reasoned in the depths of my soul with no human aid or guidance. Then I became indignant with myself for what I deemed infidelity to my religion. Surely it is because I am not familiar enough with the riches of my own faith, I thought. Thereafter, every spare moment was employed in searching the books of the most eminent Jewish writers for a ray of light. Among other books that I eagerly perused were the eight volumes on the life of Christ by Gertsch, a renowned rabbi. Yes, Christ was a great man, they all acknowledged, one of the greatest heroes of history, a noble character indeed, yet each denied his divinity. This was a puzzle to me. Either Christ was divine or he was an impostor, for he proclaimed himself to be the Son of God, yea, very God. At this time I confided my spiritual struggle to be who said I was unfair to view only one side of the question, and pleaded with me to read The Life of Christ by Reverend Walter Elliot. After some consideration, I took the book, thinking, I'll prove to myself that my attraction for Christ is not well-founded. But the Divine Shepherd thought otherwise, and with infinite patience, his footsteps pursued his unworthy sheep. The charm, the beauty... The sacrificial character of Christ drew me magnetically and held me spellbound. Surely this was the Messiah? No, it must not be. It could not be. Reproaching myself for being so disloyal, I threw the book from me. O oh God, show me that the Catholic Church is false, and teach me to find thee in the faith of my fathers, became the constant cry of my agonized soul. O oh, who but a convert can comprehend the agony caused by uncertainty in a matter so vital? Of all the trials that God in his mercy has sent since then, not any have been so excruciating as this struggle which lasted over a year. Ever I searched for truth among learned rabbis, ever the picture of Jesus loomed before my vision, was ever a man so holy, so kind, so worthy of love, if only he were divine. B. asked me to say a prayer every day for grace to see the light. There being no appearance of Catholicity in it, I consented. Little did I realize that I was addressing my plea to the Holy Ghost, the third person of the Blessed Trinity. I will relate the prayer here with the hope that it will be a solace to other souls in time of desolation, when God hides his face, as it were, and the soul feels itself struggling alone in the darkness. O oh, Holy Spirit, take me for thy disciple. Guide me, illuminate me, sanctify me. Bind my hands that so they may do no evil. Cover my eyes that they may see it no more. Sanctify my heart that evil may not dwell within me. Be thou my God, be thou my guide. Wherever you lead me, I will go. Whatever you forbid me, I will renounce, and whatever you command me, in thy strength, I will do. Lead me then, O Lord, into the fullness of your truth. The frequent repetition of this prayer brought calm to my troubled spirit. I trusted that God would hear and answer it in his own time. As the days and weeks sped on, I grew more and more dissatisfied in my religion, to take part in the outward ceremonies of the Jewish religion when my soul no longer approved seemed acting deceitfully. 
to address the God of the Christians appeared to be rank disloyalty. Truly, I knew not what to do. Later, I resumed the reading of Father Elliot's Life of Christ, this time not in a critical mood, but as one unprejudiced, seeking for truth. Yes, I resolved I would follow God wherever he might lead me, although I realized full well what sacrifices he might demand. How it happened, I cannot recall. Gradually, my soul was illumined with divine grace. There was no doubt now. Christ was divine. It seemed strange to me that I had not perceived this sooner. I had found my God, and I would follow him. My duty became very distinct. I must be instructed. At home, this is little short of impossible, for not long before this time, my sister had told my parents that she wished to be a Catholic, and they felt in duty bound to protect me, lest I too become infected with the same loathsome disease. Therefore, I devised a plan of going to the city of M, entering a training school for nurses, thus affording myself the opportunity of receiving instructions. My mother consented only one, under only one, excuse me, my mother consented only under one condition, namely, that I would enter a training school conducted under Jewish auspices. This I did. Shortly after my arrival at M, I was blessed indeed in having for my instructor, Father G., a Capuchin priest. My visit to him was my first interview with a priest, and I was rather uneasy, but soon my fears disappeared. Here was a true man of God. I have always looked upon it as one of the great graces of my life to have been guided by one so Christ-like. And here I cannot help expressing my gratitude to Father P., a convert from Judaism, whose kind advice and earnestness in God's service have inspired me with courage and determination. Having once realized that Christ was divine, I had no difficulty in accepting his doctrines. I felt I was entering a new world full of mysterious beauty and fascination that I could never learn enough of his marvelous church, never begin to know as much of it as I should know. After much persuasion, my mother allowed my sister to live with me in the city, thinking that thus she would be far removed from any Catholic influence. Together, we made our profession of faith and were baptized on August 3, 1917. This was followed by a short retreat, and on Sunday morning, the Feast of Our Lady of the Snow, at a little shrine dedicated to our Blessed Mother, we received for the first time our Lord in Holy Communion. That day, we both made an irrevocable offering of our hearts to God, who has since deigned to accept our poor oblation. No one but a convert can ever grasp adequately what it means to have been without the sacraments and then to have them. The contrast is far greater than that of a ship at the mercy of the wind and waves, anchorless and rudderless, and one with all sails set, following unswervingly her desired course, knowing with certainty that some day she will reach her port in safety. A year later, the voice inviting me to his inner circle of followers could be resisted no longer. By a special providence, God guided me to a convent of mercy, whose members had so attracted me by their humility, simplicity, and the beautiful exemplification of mercy, so dear to the heart of the Master. 
This has since then become the dearest spot on earth to me. All the riches and pleasures of the world cannot compare with the joy and peace of one who gives herself entirely to the service of God. After our reception, I had to face the trial of informing my parents. I dreaded the effect that this knowledge might have on them. I knew full well that they would consider this the greatest disgrace that could possibly fall on any Jewish family. I wrote to my only beloved brother, who was a physician, asking him to take his vacation and thus be with mother to console her when she received my letter. He replied, begging us to remain faithful to the Jewish religion. Nearly six years have elapsed. No word from him has reached us during this time. He does not wish to hear our names mentioned and does not know whether we are numbered among the living or the dead. To us Catholics who look upon all trials in the light of Christ crucified, no cross seems unbearable. It was a cross for us to realize what sorrow the news of our conversion would cause our parents. But after a few years, seeing what peace and happiness we enjoyed, Mother became somewhat reconciled. Yes, these crosses are part of the price. In some degree, all converts must expect to meet them. But let us bear in mind what Christ said. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Several times I have been asked whether I have ever regretted taking the step. In all sincerity, I answer, no, a thousand times no. Since my conversion, I have never for one moment doubted, but have daily, with overflowing heart, said my te deum for the infinite mercy of Jesus towards me. Yea, I could not do without him. Jesus is more to me than all the richest, fairest gifts of earth could ever be. All the more I find him precious, and the more I find him true, the more I long for you to find what he can be to you. So that's the end of the um, witness testimony of Sister M. Aquin. I have been reading from a compilation of Jewish Catholic converts written by, or put together, I should say, by Rosalie Marie Levy in the first part of the 20th century, first half of the 20th century, called Why Jews Become Catholics. And um, reading them reminds me of why I'm doing this and why I have this show, which is that, um, as, as this convert said, no one but a convert can understand, um, can grasp adequately the transition between having been without the truths of the Catholic faith and without the sacraments and then coming into those truths and coming into the grace of those sacraments. The, the danger, the one downside of being a cradle Catholic is not being able to be consciously aware of what you have through the Catholic faith that nobody who isn't Catholic doesn't have. And without seeing that, without seeing the painful deprivation, frankly, that somebody who does not have the sacraments, does not have the truths of the Catholic Church, and in the case of Jews, does not even have any um, ability to have a conscious relationship with Jesus, um, it's hard to know why, frankly, it's hard to know why one should evangelize. It's hard to have a real fire in one's heart for evangelization. 
And it's um, actually hard to understand why you're not offending somebody by evangelizing them, even if they might superficially think you are, but you are trying to give them the greatest gift that one human being can possibly give to another human being. Think of a, a doctor who saves someone's life or a hero who saves someone's life, you know, who jumps into a freezing river to save somebody who's drowning. You think they are doing them this great favor because they have saved their life at the risk of their own. They are doing them a great favor. But how much smaller is that favor than the favor one does someone if one takes them from the path, frankly, to perdition, to hell, and places them on the path to heaven? Because if you save somebody's life, yeah, I mean, you are saving them for 10 years or 20 years or 30 years or 60 years or 80 years, but you're not saving them for all eternity. It is only by bringing them into the... um path to heaven, onto the path to heaven, that you are saving them for all eternity. I mean, we should have as much um, passion and respect for evangelization, for the conversion of sinners, as we have for saving people from bodily death. We should have an infinite time, uh, you know, infinitely more um, uh, importance attached to that than to saving somebody's physical life. Anyway, this perspective, unfortunately, is is um, not as universally seen as one might like it to be. Especially, especially because, of course, we're living in a time of political correctness, and one doesn't want to offend anybody. And first of all, evangelization does occasionally offend people. Because the underlying premise, that is, I know the absolute objective truth and I want to share it with you because you don't know it, is in some sense intrinsically offensive, which is why it has to be done, uh, evangelization has to be done with as much charity and as much um, empathy and graciousness and kindness and love as at all possible to give a counterbalance, so to speak, of the intrinsic offensiveness of being put in the position basically of saying i have the truth you don't let me share it with you that's no excuse not to do it however and every certainly every jew in this book every jewish convert that i have ever heard of and certainly yours truly um are far more grateful for any efforts that were done to bring them to the true faith uh, and to bring them to relationship with God, which is, of course, the whole point of Judaism, then, you know, then one can even conceive of, uh, when I look back on the course of my conversion, I can see a number of uh, people who sort of stuck their necks out and to whom I responded uh, with contempt and sometimes insults and sometimes sacrilege or blasphemy, I should say. Uh, because they try to share the truth of um, Christianity and, and the truth of Catholicism to me. And yet I am infinitely uh, grateful to them. So uh, we usually take a short break about halfway through the program. I think I'll do that now.
the world and all its trappings come into amazing grace. Let go your every fear. There is only mercy here. Come to Jesus. Oh, the free. listening to Radio Maria, a Christian voice in your home. We now return to our program, Jesus, the Promised Messiah of Judaism, with Roy Showman. Hi, welcome back to Jesus, the Promised Messiah of Judaism. And today I've been, um, been reading some accounts of other Jews who entered the Catholic Church. And uh, in the course of doing so, just before the break, I just mentioned the um, incredible incredible contrast that only a converse can understand at the contrast between not 
um, not having the truths of the Catholic faith and the graces of the sacraments and going from that state to having them. And as a result, uh, the gratitude that the convert has, of course, for everyone who reached out to evangelize them, uh, even if at the moment they, they, they reacted with hostility. So I promised to... Um, for the break, I, I, I said that when we come back from the break, I will mention some of those incidents in my own life as illustrations. So I will do that. Let me just, uh, before I do that, repeat a paragraph from the last uh, conversion account that I read just before the break. No one but a convert can ever grasp adequately what it means to have been without the sacraments and then to have them. The contrast is far greater than that of a ship at the mercy of the wind and waves anchorless and rudderless, and one with all sails set, following unswervingly her desired course, knowing with certainty that some day she shall reach her port in safety. So, um, and let me also introduce these stories by saying I had a close friend um, before before I, I my conversion, before I came to the truth, um, so this now I'm talking about my, uh, I guess my very early thirties and, um, she left the country and moved to, I think it was Belgium, might've been Holland for about eight or nine years and, and then came back to the country and gave me a call, uh, you know, cur- to get in touch, curious about what had become of me. And I answered the phone. She was a little bit surprised, and almost her first words was, I was sure that by now you would have killed yourself. Um, frankly, because of the agony and inner turmoil that I was in before my conversion, an agony and an inner turmoil that came not from the external circumstances of my life, which were actually very favorable. I was, uh, you know, uh, um, uh, well, anyway, I was actually a, a professor at Harvard but because of the meaningless pointlessness and rudderlessness as as that woman describes it of being a ship um you know without without rudder without um you know without sails just kind of drifting meaninglessly uh with any with no purpose or true direction uh no transcendent direction and also without the love that uh, they're wonderful human sources of love. They're wonderful earthly sources of love. But none of them can satisfy the hunger that we have for the infinite depth of love, which frankly comes from God and um, comes through Jesus, and who is God, and comes through the sacraments, in particular the Eucharist, uh, but also perhaps comes through being in a state of grace, which is almost impossible for somebody who doesn't know the truths of the faith to be in. Anyway, so let me just tell a couple of the accounts of various people in the course of my life who um, stuck their neck out to evangelize me a little bit, and even if I responded uh, with hostility at the time. So the first one I will mention is a babysitter that my parents used for my sister and I when we were, I think I was probably about four or five at the time, my sister two years older. And she was what seemed to us to be an old lady. Uh, my parents would ha- arrange for her to come over on, on Saturday evening so they could, you know, have their date night, so to speak, go out to dinner together without the kids. And um, one, uh, one night, 
um, uh, after the Lawrence Welk show. Uh, that's one thing I remember about her is that whatever else happened, she had to have her Lawrence Welk show, you know, on Saturday evening at 7.30 or whenever it was. After the Lawrence Welk show, she uh, taught me the Hail Mary. And, uh, you know, which I learned, you know, which I memorized. She was just, you know, this lady and she was teaching me something and I was a, you know, very young child eager to please and to learn and stuff. So I, I memorized the Hail Mary. And then my parents came home and I ran up to them as they came in the door as a small child will, very proud, you know, look at what I learned, look at what I learned and recited the Hail Mary. And if you excuse the expression, all hell broke loose. My parents got very upset, started screaming at this old lady, babysitter. And I remember her kind of just kind of mumbling, puzzled, you know, but it's just the Hail Mary. Everybody has to know the Hail Mary. Anyway, needless to say, we never saw her again. But it's very telling to me that I remember the incident so vividly. Um, and I think that was um, probably the first the first seed that was planted in that four or five year old's soul that blossomed into my conversion. Um, another part of the journey, which I will recount, took place now many years later. I was in my mid 20s or maybe early 20s, uh, a student at Harvard Business School, and I lived in an apartment on off to one side of Harvard Square, the opposite side of that the business school was on. And every morning going to school, I would have to cross Harvard Square to get to the side that the business school was on. And one morning as I was crossing it, somebody shoved a, a flyer in my hand, you know, just a one sheet Xeroxed flyer. And it was, um, it turns out the person who shoved it in my hand was a Jew for Jesus, you know, Jews for Jesus organization missionary which is an outreach of um, Messianic Jews, of Jews who have come to faith in Christ, by and large not Catholic. And this, uh, this flyer had a crude cartoonish drawing of Jesus uh, wearing a tallis, you know, the Jewish prayer shawl, and wearing a yarmulke, the Jewish skull cap. And it, I don't know what it said across the top, something like Jesus was a Jew, or did he know Jesus was a Jew, or something like that. And I immediately crumpled it up angrily and threw it in the nearest uh, trash pail. But, you know, in that moment, before I had a chance to crumple it up, I saw that image and I saw that headline, you know, Jesus was a Jew. And, you know, it it was the first time that had really occurred to me that Jesus was a Jew. Um, it definitely, a, a kind of light went on, a light went on that I, of course, didn't want to pay any attention to. But just the concept that Jesus was actually a Jew was a new concept to me. And it definitely, again, I, I remember the incident so vividly, is in itself evidence of the seed that it planted. Um, I will tell two other of these accounts. Um, one, actually, I, I'm out of sequ sequence because here's something that happened uh, freshman year in college, so it was before the Jews for Jesus pamphlet or, or flyer, which was uh, I was a, a, a student beginning MIT, and you know I met the other freshmen or some of the other freshmen, and there was only one who attracted me that I wanted to be the roommate of, and I went to great lengths to 
you know, uh, move around so that I could have him as a roommate. And he was a serious Catholic. He was from a very serious Catholic family, a farming family from Iowa. And um, I had contempt for his Catholicism, and I kind of, uh, you know, teased him about it or, uh, you know, um, needled him about it. But he was the only one I wanted to have as a roommate because he was sunny. He was sunny. He was cheerful. He was warm. Um, uh, he was he was kind of radiant or light, whereas you know the neurotic, if I can say so, you know the the neurotic non-Catholics, non-Christians who were most of my milieu there, all had a kind of anxiety and edginess and and darkness to them, including me. And he, you know, we ended up being roommates. And that was definitely an influence on me. And one Thanksgiving vacation, the first Thanksgiving vacation, he invited me home with him to his family uh, in in uh, in Iowa. And I went. And uh, I was very nasty to them about their Catholicism, actually, um, you know, jokingly. But I was continually irritating or blasphemous or something, you know, kind of uh, sniping at them in this fake, good-humored way. I remember, I remember going to church one Sunday morning because, because, um, I think actually, if I remember correctly, they insisted, I don't remember actually whether, I don't think I actually went into the church. I think they were all going to church because they had to go to Sunday Mass and insist on going to Sunday Mass. And I don't remember what I did while they were at Mass. But in any case, I was in the car with them. And I remember singing a very blasphemous song, uh, a, uh, a comic, a comic anti-Catholic song by Tom Lear, um, called, I, I'm not going to repeat the blasphemy, but called the Vatican rag, which was kind of, um, I don't want to say popular in those days, but, uh, uh, he had a TV show. So it was kind of well known, at least to me. And I knew the lyrics and it makes fun of confession. It makes fun of the Eucharist. It makes fun of uh, kneeling at Mass. It's nothing but nonstop blasphemy. And I remember singing it in the car to Mass, um, kind of trying to irritate them and make them angry. And they refused to get angry. They just kind of um, stoically wrote it out, so to speak, um, which also obviously impresses me that they did not snipe back, that they did not fight back. They simply gritted their teeth and bore it. Um, understanding my situation and probably, frankly, you know, praying for my eventual conversion. In other words, taking the suffering that I was imposing on them and turning it around as, as arrows to, you know, penetrate my heart with the grace of conversion, which of course happened long afterwards. And the last little story that I will recount was um again later actually it was it was the last in this sequence it was after i had finished um uh, uh graduate school um i was just flying on an airplane and uh the woman in the seat next to me young woman about my age was uh, on fire a protestant i mean uh, on fire christian and she just was bubbling over with enthusiasm and it was a transcontinental flight i mean i think it was from from California to Boston. So it was a long flight and, um, 
you know, it's kind of boring sitting there. So I was happy to talk to her and she just, she was just bubbling over with Christian enthusiasm and love of Jesus and stuff. And I'm sure that I wasn't terribly kind to her, but her joy and her enthusiasm again, uh, really kind of penetrated my armor. So, uh, and, and, uh, you know, in all of those cases, when perhaps at the time, not the last case, but the other cases, you know, I or my family reacted to these people, um, you know, with anger and indignation. Uh, now I have nothing but gratitude to them. And, uh, you know, as I said just before the break, if saving somebody's physical life is a mitzvah, is a good deed. If, if jumping into a freezing river to pull out somebody who's drowning, a stranger who's drowning, you know, if that's a meritorious deed, if that's something that we should honor and respect and emulate, how much more so if we jump in and intervene when somebody is on the highway to perdition, the highway to hell, and, um, you know, grab them by the collar and help them cross over to the path to heaven. Um, that is clearly all the more important thing to do, all the more praiseworthy thing to do. And yet, and yet we don't think that way, um, too often. So, so that's, that's why I did that little exhortation. So, um, with that, we've come to close to the end of the show. Um, I, I, I will read a, um, I will try to read one more uh, account. Um, it'll have to be a fairly short account, obviously. Um, uh, so I will read one more account called The Way of the Cross by Rosemary Rao, uh, the account of yet another Jew who came to the grace of a faith in Christ and the sacraments of the Catholic Church. She actually also became a religious, like one of the other stories I read. I was born in Cincinnati, Ohio, the eldest of four girls, being afflicted from birth with paralysis of my entire body. I received my education with the Sisters of Notre Dame de Namur, whom I loved very much. While attending school, it was my desire to become a Catholic. The Sisters thought it was on account of my having been in their company so long and refused to permit me to take the step. A year after I left school, my family moved to New York. Still having the desire to embrace the Catholic faith, I met some Sisters of Charity the following year who showed a great interest in me. The next year, I was introduced to Father Fagan, S.J., now deceased, whom I called on weekly in regard to my conversion. On account of my physical condition, it was impossible for me to make my own livelihood, and as Father was fearful that my parents would disown me if I embraced the Catholic faith, he refused to baptize me. He died suddenly, and then I met Father Martin J. Scott. As he found that I was well instructed in regard to the Catholic religion, he administered the sacrament of baptism two weeks later on All Saints' Day in the Church of St. Ignatius Loyola, and on December 15th I received the bread of life for the first time in the little convent chapel of the Sisters of Charity. Two years afterwards, I was confirmed by the late Bishop Cusick. I never realized that one could find such happiness and peace of soul in this world as has been vouchsafed to me. I did not make my conversion known to my family, but was faithful in the observance of all my new religious duties. 
It was about three years later that my parents heard of the step I had taken, but they never tried to prevent my attending the Catholic Church, realizing how much happiness it afforded me. All of my Jewish friends have remained faithful and loyal to me. It has only been with the grace of God that I have been able to carry the heavy crosses God has sent me, each one of which has strengthened me in my faith and confidence in him. He gives us an opportunity in this way of proving our love for him. And when we consider how much he suffered for us, even to the death of the cross, we realize that our trials cannot compare with the great agony of our divine Redeemer. They make us in some small way more like unto him and draw us closer to his sacred heart. It is my prayer that all who read this may be blessed with the gift of faith so that they too may enter the one true fold. End of the account. So let us just thank God that we have been blessed with the gift of faith and let's try to remain faithful to that gift and take full advantage of it and help bring others into the greatest gift that God has ever given mankind, which is the knowledge of the truths of the Catholic faith and the graces that flow through the sacraments of the Catholic Church. So with that, I will sign off for today. You've been listening to Jesus, the promised Messiah of Judaism on Radio Maria. I, I hope this has been a, um entertaining, so to speak, engaging show. And I want to thank you very much for listening. And um, I pray that you tune in again next week, same time, same place, for Jesus, the promised Messiah of Judaism. Bye for now.